Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Last Factor Podcast. What is up, lacrosse fans? You are watching another episode of the Lax Factor Podcast. It is episode 121. Today, we are going to have a question of the day that I'm hoping everyone argued about over Thanksgiving. We are going to do another player profile. Today, we're doing the number two incoming freshman for the 20. Uh, 21 season, Owen Hiltz, who is going to be a freshman at Syracuse this year out of Culver Academy. And then we're going to do a couple of mailbag questions. Before I get into it, as always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And if you want to support us beyond that, you can go to laxfactor.com. You can watch our videos there. You can get swag there. You can listen to the audio version. And if you prefer to just listen to the audio version, you can get this anywhere where you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, or you can go to our podcast home, anchor.fm forward slash lax factor, and listen along there. So let's get into it right away. Question of the day. Uh, it was posed by Terry Foy, uh, inside lacrosse fame. When your offense is in a 2 3 1, how many attackmen are lined up below GLE? Now, this is an age old question. I once had it posed to me. It wasn't even really posed to me more than it was, what the hell is your problem, Ted? Uh, uh, an old friend of mine, not an old friend, a friend of mine, Bob Leary, the current head coach at Marion University out west. We were coaching a summer league, a travel team together. Uh, his son was playing on it. So I was the coach. His son was playing. So he obviously, you know, a head lacrosse coach is going to help out. So he was, uh, I, a, a definitely inferior coach to Bob Leary got to be the head coach and Leary got to be the assistant coach. Albeit he probably did a hell of a lot more than I did. Anyway, I digress. Um, we were talking about our offensive sets at one point and I was talking about a two, three, one set. Now a two, three, one set to me is two middies out top three across, you know, you get two attacks on goal line, extended the wing area, then a guy on the crease, and then you got a guy at X. So it's two out top three across one at X. Now, when I said that, he looked at me like I was an alien. I think he said something to me like, what the hell are you from Baltimore or something? You count from out back. You're an upstate guy. You got to be counting from out back. So that then started my even deeper, deeper, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Imposter syndrome. Should I even be a coach now? Because I'm counting my offenses from out top. And uh, Foy posed this question on November 25th via lacrosse Twitter. And he uh, legitimately, I mean, I'm not surprised at all by this, uh, won 70% of people said one person would be lined up below GLE, meaning 70% of the people that answered ended up saying that they count from out back and up to the top. So they have one at X, three across, two out top playing mid. Um, or if you're Maryland, who knows who the hell those guys out top are, but they're out top. Uh, and then only 29% said that they would count two uh, as, as um, in that set, and that would be the two guys out top. So only 29% see it the way I do, meaning we count from top to bottom. Now, one of the other things he tried to do was he tried to say, if you answered two, where do you live? He was hoping to try to draw a parallel between people who count from uh, people who count like me. And he was trying to see if we all lived 
in New England. And the reality was it wasn't. If you answered two, where do you live? Only 33% said that they lived in New England. And I'm sure he was hoping it was 66%, which was everywhere else. So it didn't end up being as regional specific as what they thought. And it, it brings me to wonder, A, what would you guys count it? If you were in a 2-3-1 set, how many guys do you have at X? How many guys do you have below um, goal line extended? Um, my answer, like I said, I would have one behind goal line extended. I count from the top down. I'm thinking part of the th- part of it may be a sports dynamic. I was a basketball player in high school, you know, through youth and into high school, and we counted everything that way. You counted your zone defenses top to bottom. You played a two-one-two zone. We played. We did a lot of like three-two trapping um, and things like that, where you kind of had a rabbit in the middle. It was almost like a one-three-one. I think we played at one point too. Now with those, there you know it, it reverses, but we we did. We always counted from out top, and then offensively, we always counted from out top, out top and down. So for me, uh, we didn't have a coach. In high school and lacrosse wise, it was an X's and O's guys. He was just a run around and be savage kind of coach, and it worked fairly well for us. Um, uh, so when I got to college, I don't even remember how my first college coach counted it, and I like I'm, I'm completely drawing a blank. But I just know in my head it was always counted from the top down, and uh, I think it may have had something to do with basketball because that was just a natural thing for me. So I'm wondering to you people, for any of you who see it like me and who would say that one person was behind GLE in a 2-3-1 set, why do you call it that? Is it is it because it's just how you were taught? Is it because that's how you considered it in other sports? Let me know because I am curious. My computer just went to sleep on me here. Um, but now we get to the big part of the day here. The big part of the day is the player profile. This is why you guys all tune in to listen to the greatest lacrosse podcaster of, of your age, me, uh, Owen Hiltz. Now I've been talking about Hiltz and I haven't, I, I haven't been all that excited about Hiltz. So any of you guys who know I'm a Q's homer and who listen to me talk about Q's all the time, I haven't been talking about Hiltz. And I do always say, I don't often talk about the young guys coming in because who knows how they're going to pan out. But the reason I hadn't been all hyped about Hiltz was I was under the impression based on hearing people talk about him. I hadn't really spent any time looking him up, watching any of his highlight cuts or anything like that. So I had been kind of spending all this time thinking he was a lefty finisher. The way you talk, you heard people talk, it made it sound like this dude is a ridiculous finisher. So I picture and you know, highlight reel worthy and all that. I picture him being a sniper. I picture him being an off ball guy, Canadian, nonetheless, a lefty. So I'm picturing a walker, someone who's capable of dodging, but who isn't a big ball carrier uh, per se. I picture a Mac O'Keefe kind of guy, maybe not that caliber even, but I was picturing those kinds of players. I was totally wrong. Totally wrong. The kid coming out of Culver Academy, he is, in fact, a highlight real capable lefty from Petersburg, Ontario. He did commit to Denver back in September of 2018. At the time, he was IL's number three overall recruit, and I've heard him called both. I, at the time of me writing this, he was showing up as their number two overall recruit. Um, so to, to kind of digress a little bit, we were talking in 2019, early 2020, about Syracuse's recruiting kind of hurting. Uh, they had five players decommit that were top, I believe, top 100 guys, five guys decommit between 2019 and 2020 and choose other locations. And it wasn't just that. A couple of them chose conference rivals, Virginia and Notre Dame, a couple of the decommits. Uh, and then one of the others chose Harvard. And I can't remember where some of the other guys went. So Cuse was under, under you know, a lot of people were trashing on Desco, calling for Desco's head, saying that he's lost it, they can't recruit anymore. Enter Pat March from uh, Princeton. 
So the Cuse connection to Hiltz was Pat March. He recruited him heavily as he had ties to several other Culver Canucks, including Zach Courier, Riley Thompson, Luke Anderson, Jake Stevens, all while he was at Princeton. He ditches Princeton, comes to Cuse. He's now our offensive coordinator, and boom, we now have our foot in the door for Owen Hiltz. In 2019, like I said, they were under fire. All of a sudden, though, 2020, you know, the, the offseason between 2019 and 2020 hits, and now all of a sudden we have Chase Scanlon, transfer from Loyola to Syracuse that was a huge get and it almost at least for the 2020 season made up for some of those flips and some of the lack of recruiting and recruits panning out leading up to that now you go we have a COVID shortened season now we have the 2021 transfer here and Cuse has been killing it recruiting wise uh, at least with the 20 what is it the 2022s is what I did a piece on or whatnot now the kicker here Hiltz the number two guy and I wasn't hyped on him because I thought he was a finisher turns out that was way bigger for Syracuse than I was paying attention to, and 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 I wish I wish I wasn't such an idiot and I joined the hype train before, um, because I had him pegged totally wrong. So what type of player is Hiltz? And like I said, I heard electrifying lefty playmaker, and I picture a kid that's a better finisher than he is a creator or a dodger, and he is not that. He is the real deal, an all-around talent, top to bottom. And I didn't picture, I didn't know he was one of the wee folk either. The kid comes in, I think, tipping the scales at like 5'7", 180. So, I mean, he's solid. He's not going to get pushed around too badly, but he is one of the wee folk. Uh, 2018 Culver Academy stats, 50 goals, 62 helpers. Just hearing people talk about him, I had him pegged as a 75-25 guy. The reality, he's a 50-60 guy, 50-50 guy. In 2019, had another 100-plus point season. I couldn't find the actual numbers for that 2019 season. And then, as we all know, the 2020 season totally went kaput on all of these kids. But he tore it up playing uh, playing outside of that, playing travel ball and everything like that. Um, in terms of his capabilities, he is not an ankle-breaking Dodger. He's not a Mike Sowers, a Mike Powell, where he's going to cut on you, cut again, cut on you, cut again. He will dodge. He will re-dodge. He's just not going to totally break somebody's ankles on that split. But if called upon, I put him in, in the second tier of dodging. You know, you have your first tier Dodgers, your Michael Sowers, your your Michael Kraus, Michael Kraus out of Virginia, one of the best Dodgers in Division, Division One lacrosse. Never got, I don't think, enough credit for being the tough as nails uh, lacrosse player that he was. Did a lot of dirty work, did a lot of dirty creating in that Virginia offense. I don't think that Hiltz is that, but I think I'd put him definitely as a two-tier Dodger, a guy that you put him on that Syracuse attack, he is automatically, if not the best Dodger, right up there with somebody like Rafis. Um, Cook has the capability of being a really good Dodger as well. He just hasn't panned out in terms of his point production yet, but he's quick and twitchy as well. So not the best Dodger in the world, but definitely right up there with, you know, and will handle his own. He could just about handle any pole at the Division One level, I would say. Um, and then I watch his game tape and it was hard to, in the game tape. That's part of the dodging part is it was hard to tell how good of a Dodger he really could be because Culver in all of the highlights I watched, they were carving people up. So when he was going to the goal, he was beating guys bad enough that it was an easy dish goal. Um, or, you know, in the, in the scenarios where he did dodge hard and redodge and ended up working his guy down that left wing, uh, and dodging underneath, which he's really good at it. He, they made it look a little bit too easy. So I'm just not sure how that translates to the division one level, but you know, and it wasn't like they were playing chumps. So maybe I need to need to factor that in, but it was hard to tell overall because Culver's loaded. A lot of his spot shooting was just dudes beating somebody hitting hilts, hilts, uh, knifes it. So it was tough off ball. His field awareness is off the charts. Now I'm not going to say he's a Mac O'Keefe off ball type of lacrosse player, but certainly 
um, a kid that can dodge and is a second tier dodger and has the field awareness and the off ball prowess of someone like a Walker out of Denver, who's a you know fellow Culver Academy player. Um, incredible off off ball awareness, adept at finding space in between the seams. More specifically, he he's good at kind of just letting letting his teammates do the work. And then you know, he, a lot of guys when they don't have the ball, they don't know what to do. They end up just falling into the motion of the offense, and they don't end up seeing the field and finding seams for the ball carrier to hit them through. And he is off the charts good in that way. I I, I would say that you have O'Keefe here. I think by the time Hiltz is done, he's going to be below, you know, not too far below Hiltz in terms of his off-ball prowess. Kid can snipe. I even remarked that he actually has that odd relief or release like O'Keefe too. He it's hard for you know a lot of guys that just shoot top down, top down. Everyone always tells you, hey, you know, straight over your shoulder, you know, stick high, get it down, follow through, you know, try not to do as much as the sidearm crap, you know. So you got those classic snipers that typically have very fluid, very mechanical. Um, very by the book motions. He is not that. Mac O'Keefe is that way too. Mac O'Keefe, for as as high of a shooting percentage as Mac O'Keefe carries overall, considering how far out he shoots on average, um, I feel like that Hiltz is kind of like that. It's that odd release that makes it hard for goalies to track. It's that odd release that allows him to kind of put the ball up, put the ball down, um, and and the release in itself doesn't doesn't give too much away in terms of where the trajectory is going to go after he lets it go. So from in terms of his off ball ability, get, getting open, he's incredible, and then his uh, his shot, you know, his finishing capabilities, even from ten yards plus. Uh, they're also excellent. And then inside, he can finish with the best of them as well. A lot of these guys, you put them inside, they're going to finish. He's he's as adept at finishing as anybody uh, will be in the NCAA, especially by his senior year. Feeding. Feeding, once again, hard to tell how what he was doing at Culver will translate to NCAA Division One, and not just that, but ACC tournament-level play. Um, he, he could not a QB. Like I said, he's not a QB-style ball carrier. He's not a Michael Sowers. But a Michael Krause, he could be, and I don't mean Michael Krause in terms of his dodging toughness or anything like that, but I mean just in the, he'll go to the rack, he'll take some punishment, he'll score goals, he'll go to the rack, he'll take some punishment, he will feed. He dodges with his hands up, he's adept at getting his hands free as dudes are beating on him, Be just that's part of that whole field awareness, high IQ kind of guy, so... At the D1 level, I think that, yeah, he's going to be able to dodge and he's going to be able to hit open men, especially in that Syracuse offense where an attackman can dodge up that left or right side. As long as you keep your head up, you've got midfielders that are nonstop, especially on that first Syracuse midfield line. You've got Dordovic, you've got Tromboli, um, you've got, um, oh, shoot. Now I'm just drawing blanks. My brain, I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, guys that I talk about left and right, they're just not coming to me. My recall is a little bit off. But anyway, that Syracuse midfield line, they're filthy. So you have, and all the way into the second midfield line, they're very capable. So you've got guys that are hungry that as these attackmen are going to dodge, they're going to be filling it up. But more importantly for him, he's going to fit in really well in the Syracuse offense because a lot of the creation, a lot of the initial uh, dodges are, are going to come from the midfield, and that's where he excels. In the highlight clips, and maybe if I line this up right, I'll show these clips specifically, but you may have already seen him. The midfielders that dodge out top, very much like the Syracuse midfielders will be dodging out top, he's really good at kind of allowing the the watching the D get sucked up and finding seams on that left wing. So I feel like 
especially as you got mids dodging from out top. March uh, tended to dodge the mids from corners into the middle a little bit more, especially where we have the righty mids dodging from that corner opposite him. You get a mid opposite him in the corner, dodging into the middle of the field with Hilt sitting over off that left wing. That's going to be a deadly combination. Now, the only kicker is uh, uh, Desco had talked about how Hiltz was probably going to see a little bit more time than the average freshman, partly because he's filthy, but also because he's a lefty and they only have three lefties on the roster. So I'm not sure where they end up putting Hiltz. Do they end up putting Hiltz at X? Do they end up putting Hiltz on the left wing when Rafis is in and put Rafis at X? That'll be interesting to see because Rafis has always been the guy holding down that left-handed spot over there in the Cuse offense. But uh, Rafis is also one of the better ball carriers on that Cuse attack. So uh, I think you're going to end up seeing a four-man rotation uh, with Syracuse on attack. I think you'll probably see Hiltz come off the bench, at least initially, uh, and Cook start. And then I think that um, when he does come off the bench, they'll shift things around a little bit. Maybe you bump Rafis to X, you keep him on that left wing, uh, and Scanlon obviously up on that right side. So we don't know what they're going to do. I think uh, the look is Scanlon on the right, uh, Cook at X, and Rafis obviously on the left. That's an easy one, but I think you'll just see Hiltz and Rafis change a little bit. And the other thing with the Syracuse attack, they, they typically play all over, uh, and Scanlon's going to end up playing you know more of the crease area, high wings. So those attackmen are kind of interchangeable at that point anyway. So, you know, I, I also in his dodging, I saw him do a little bit of running by guys as well. So his speed is, you know, he's got much more speed than I actually thought he did um, also. So overall, Cuse got a killer when they picked up Hiltz. I'm far more excited about that. And, and the fact that they're already loaded, they already returned everybody back from last year's uh, team outside of a, a mid or two off that second line, which they're going to be able to replace those pretty easily. Um Hiltz is just going to fit in well. I think he's going to factor in immediately. I think he's going to play. I think that you'll probably see him on the man up squad almost right away as well. So they picked up a killer when they picked up this kid. And I'm glad that I finally just took the time to watch his game tape so I could shut myself up about not being excited about him. And, uh, you know, now I'm insanely excited about him. So that's it for the Hilt stuff. Uh, we get into a couple of mailbag items here. Uh, one of them can... The Whips 3 was asked in one of the comments, and I'm sorry, normally I try to keep track of who asked these, but the, the, the way this show went, I actually live-streamed this show on Sunday, this whole thing, and in the segment where I cut away to show Hilt's highlights as I talked about it, I didn't have my audio on, so I was just lip... No one in the comments that I saw said, hey, Ted, we can't hear you, so I'm uh, redoing this, and I just didn't have all my notes with me. But can the, can the Whips repeat? Certainly. Um, I think that the way that the PLL is set up, though, the, the PLL has vested interest in the whips not three-peating. I think, I think that a team, the, you know, the same team winning the league two years in a row, that's not a bad thing by any means, and it's good for excitement, and their roster is filthy. You kind of look at the attack. They've just got a really good mix of attackmen between Rambo, MVP, Zed Williams tore it up last year. He will do that again. Jay Carlson, Brad Smith are both excellent role players, great finishers. So in terms of the attack, that's short up. Defensively, they're mean. Bryce Young, Brett Schmidt, Muller, Dunn, uh, faceoff X Nardella, had a breakout season. Uh, Burnlore had a great season in cage, and then they got Stover backing him up. I mean, you look at their roster, it's solid. Michael Earnhardt on defense, though, out of everybody. Uh, John, and then you look at their midfield. I mean, I could just go through and name names. You could do that with all of the PLL rosters, but they, they seem to gel two seasons in a row here. Will they three-peat? Certainly they could. 
But uh, is it likely? No, because just because it's never likely that a team's going to win a championship three years in a row. Do, are they going to be the favorites? Maybe. It's hard to tell, but I feel like I don't know exactly how the PLL works in terms of who makes these roster decisions. I guess I should probably figure that out. If you know how the PLL works and who's making these roster decisions, by all means, please let us know in the comments. Let me know in the comments. Hit me up in uh, social media. Join the conversation, as all my podcast cohorts like to say, and uh, hashtag us, Lax Factor, um, or just tag us in posts. But anyway, someone tell me, how does it work? Who is making these decisions at the top? Is it the coaches? Is it the coaches and the players on that team? I'm actually curious. Um, so that's the part that, that makes me kind of think they probably won't three-peat because I think the league has vested interest in making sure they shore up some of these other rosters, making sure they do get a team that is going to be able to compete legitimately to beat them in the finals here or to keep them from even making it to the finals. So uh, they could, absolutely. Do I think they will? Probably not, but I'm not going to draw a line in the sand on that one. Another question that someone had posed, and they actually posed this in the live stream on Sunday that I never ended up posting, but I did answer it, was what do Maryland's chances look like to win it all in 2021? And I, I, I mean, I'd say they're one of my top five uh, favorites overall. I think their chance of, of winning not just the Big Ten, but uh, of winning the NCAA championship, you know, winning on Memorial Day weekend, um, I think it is insanely high. Now, a lot of that's going to hinge on Bernhardt, and I'm I'm not thinking Bernhardt's coming back, but I'm not sure. I haven't heard anything. I actually just tried to look it up. So the word was he was going to play football at Ferris State. I don't know that Ferris State is even playing football right now. He wasn't on their roster when I did look it up. So I'm not sure what's happening. I haven't seen anything that says flat out, hey, Bernhardt's staying at Maryland. Um, so I, I couldn't really find, and you know, and realistically, you guys know me, I don't have any contacts at Maryland that I could hit up. Or even if I did, would I? I'm not sure. Pretty busy at work. So uh, a lot of it hinges on Bernhardt. But the, the beauty of Maryland is, A, Bernhardt's not even their leading scorer, albeit he, I think, is overall their best player or was their best player last year. As we look at their stats from last year, Logan Wisnowskis, number 12. If Bernhardt doesn't come back, if, Winous- is, if uh, Wisnowskis isn't wearing number one, that's a travesty. So I think that if Bernhardt isn't coming back, Wisnowskis is the new number one, and that's deserving, uh, deservingly. He's an, an incredible attackman, big boy, finisher, can do it all. He's not the creator that Bernhardt is, but he, you know, he anything you call upon him to do, he can handle. So Wisnowskis, 24 and 12 last year in the shortened season. Bernhardt was hanging at 20 and 9. Uh, but then the, uh, Anthony DeMeo. 10 and 11, uh, Daniel Maltz, 12 and six, Bubba Fairman, five and six. Uh, so you end up having these and Bubba Fairman. I'm, I'm insanely high on, uh, Jack Brennan freshman. Uh, he was six and three. Kyle Long had a, a decent solid season kind of filling in here. Uh, he was three and four. So Maryland overall was, was pretty young. And, uh, and no matter what happens on the defensive end of the ball, the, the last couple of years, they were good enough defensively a little bit shaky. It probably hurt them more than anything else. And offensively, they could hang with anybody. So I think their chances of winning the Big Ten, I I almost put them at a lock. I Penn State lost a lot when they lost Grant Ament. If Maryland, even if Maryland lost Bernhardt, they didn't lose as much as Penn State lost in terms of Grant Ament and, and what he meant to the offense. Because Bernhardt was a let the offense come to me kind of guy. Maryland has that 
positionless offense where everybody's just in motion and moving around and dodging from all over the field. So Bernhardt wasn't carrying the ball every single time down the field because they had all sorts of other players that could do that. You've got Fairman, who's a, a capable dodger out top. You've got Wisnowskis, who wants to carry the ball a little bit. DeMeo was solid. So Bernhardt didn't didn't create as much as what Ament did and wasn't expected to as part of the, the Maryland scheme for sure. So I think that's the, the you know uh, advantage Maryland. When you lose the guy in, in, in Ament that Penn State lost, who's touching the ball every time down the field, who's you know putting up 60, 70 assists is what he was probably on pace to do in, in 2021 or 2020. That hurts, and they don't have a ball carrier like Amet. Amet is a generational feeder. He's not necessarily a generational talent overall, uh, you know, because we, we got to be careful with how we use that word. But in terms of his feeding capabilities, generational talent. In terms of what he meant to Penn State, generational talent. And Bernhardt, while he is both of those things as well, I think because of the way Maryland's scheme is set up, they're 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 well far more equipped to handle that loss than I think Penn State is. So I think Maryland wins the Big Ten. I think that Maryland then makes a tournament, and once they're in the tournament, all bets are off. I mean, these guys, these kids are tough. I've liked their culture. I've talked a lot about Yale has had de- had developed a very good culture over the last four years. Uh, you know, starting in what was it? Was it twenty? 20- 2018, they win the national title. They have a Twarton winner. 2019, they make the finals. 2020, they were, again, a really solid lacrosse team that was probably right up there in their chances of making the final four again. The kicker with Yale is now they're dealing with the COVID Ivy crap, and they lose Jackson Morrill. They lose Kotler. They're losing guys as other teams aren't. Uh, even within their own conference, Cornell not losing Jeff Teat while Yale loses uh, Jackson Morrill. And don't front on Jackson Morrill, one of the best players in the country, period. One of the top three, top five attackmen for sure. I'd say one of the top three attackmen in the country. Now he's at Denver. So my whole kicker with Yale was they have to prove that they can do what Maryland did. Maryland has proved that they can rinse and repeat and that they can uh, sustain that success uh, re- remain one of the best teams in the country, remain the best team in their conference over the long haul. They can do that across recruiting classes. They've done it for four years. They've done it for five, six. So Maryland's culture seems pretty solid now, and there's no reason to think that it's not going to continue. So that is why I think that Maryland has a really good chance to to win the title in the end, just like I think that Syracuse has a chance. I think that Virginia has a chance. I think that Duke has the best chance, although it's really hard to go out and prove uh, yourself worthy in those scenarios. You know, just because you have the best team and the best chance to win it all does not mean that you're going to get it done come game day. So I think Maryland has as good of a shot as anybody, uh, but I do like them coming out of the Big Ten as the victors and, and going into the tournament, the Big Ten champs once again. Um, and then another weird thing, and this is going to piss off some lacrosse purists, but I, for a long time, you hear the name Eamon McEnany, and I'm a younger guy. So to me, the name Eamon McEnany. Eamon McEnany was an ESPN broadcaster. He was a guy that did all of the games. He was kind of your your Anish Shroff uh, before there was an, an Anish Shroff. Anish Shroff, I feel like, kind of came in and took over as the main, um, you know, the main broadcaster in lacrosse. I think right now he is the best um, uh, main broadcaster in lacrosse. And then I, my favorite color guys are a, a mix of a couple of guys here. But um, Eamon McEnany, that was who he was to me. And I see Eamon McEnany today on Sports Night, and it 
the parallel had never really hit my brain where Eamon McEnany is also one of the greatest attackmen to ever play the sport. Uh, an All-American at Cornell back in the late 70s, won two back-to-back national titles, was an All-American. I think he was the Turnbull Award winner as the best attackman or the best player in the country as a sophomore while at Cornell. The dude was just filthy, filthy, dirty lacrosse player. And then he was also recognized as a hero. First uh, uh, Twin Towers bombing. He um, trade center bombing, I guess. He you know, helped get a bunch of his coworkers out of the building and everything as they were evacuating, and he did perish in the more recent 9-11 attacks uh, back in 2001. So I always hear about Eamon McEnany, and you hear people just praise him left and right. And in the, the, it never clicked with me that they weren't the same person. At some point, I gelled them together, and I thought the the guy who I knew to be the broadcaster, Eamon McEnany, was also the famous Eamon McEnany lacrosse player that had died in 9-11. To my surprise today, I'm watching uh, TV this morning as I'm drinking coffee at the crack of dawn. It's early, early Thursday morning. Most of you aren't even up yet. And I've already worked a little, drank some coffee, took a crap, got a shower in, got a workout in. Um, so as I'm watching, I, th- I forget what it is, sports night on SNY real quick. I see, holy crap. Isn't that Eamon McEnany? And in my head, that guy was dead. So for about a three-second period, I'm sitting here just scratching my brain thinking, "Am I see what's going on here? Why is my seeing Eamon McEnany to the point I have to Google sports night host? And sure as crap, his name is Eamon McEnany. And then it clicked. Oh, these are obviously different guys. Now that I'm being forced to think that out loud, uh, A, the, 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 the current broadcaster Eamon McEnany I do not believe is anywhere near as old as um the the uh late great Eamon McEnany but I don't know man I just wanted to tell you guys that story that I am an idiot and that even though I hadn't really put a whole lot of thought into it I remember just thinking oh crap when when I whenever I would hear them talk about Eamon McEnany come 911 you hear them talking about um oh, I'm gonna forget his name the, the 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 red bandana guy from Boston College um, the firefighter, you hear about him, uh, every, every nine 11. And I, that's just a great story. And then you always hear about Eamon McEnany and, and Eamon McEnany's is less about what he did that day. And it's more just about what he, who he was as a person and as a teammate and as a friend. Uh, so I've ne- had never been forced to, to just sit down and, and form that, that thought process out all the way to the point where I knew what the hell I was thinking. So if I ever made myself sound like an idiot while talking about Eamon McEnany, probably everyone in the lacrosse world just assumed I was always talking about the guy I was talking about. Whenever I've talked about him, I was always talking about the right guy. I just didn't realize that the sportscaster whose face I thought was his because they share a freaking name. I just, uh, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. So you can make fun of me about that in the comments as well. But uh, I just figured that was a, a good, funny, honest story to tell you here on uh, on this Thursday morning. So that is it. We are going to uh, do a live stream again this weekend. Um, I'll uh, probably start putting up 24, whether at least until the season starts, the live streams will either be Saturday uh, early or Sunday early. Just haven't decided which we're going to do yet. So what I'll do is simply put it out the night before that we're going to do the live stream. So you guys all know live streams. We're just going to kind of try to field questions. We're also, I got permission for any of you who uh, are also members of Al's uh, College Lacrosse Discussion Group, I also got permission to do some live streams in that group and just do some Q&As. So, Booker Corrigan, I know you are not watching this right now, but if you are, hit me up because you did a great job doing some live streams within that group, uh, and the Q&As were great. I think that it would be really good for the group if we got two people together to do that. So if you want to hop in a Zoom call, we can do a happy hour 
in the College Across discussion group page. Um, uh, that would be awesome. So I'm going to hit Booker up. Booker, if you see this, which you are not going to, um, hit me up. But that is it. More on this weekend, and then we'll get back into it, and we'll do the full show again on Thursday. And as I said, we're just going to try to keep figuring out ways to pump content out. It's all a workflow issue for me, figuring out the workflow of it all, figuring out a way to put out the content with you know burning as little time as possible while also not watering down and making the content suck because nobody wants to uh, listen to a shitty podcast. So that is all. As always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell uh, so that you're notified when we put out videos. If you're an audio listener, um, go to uh, laxfactor.com. You can find our audio podcast there. Go to Anchor dot fm forward slash lax factor or you can get this anywhere where you listen to podcasts and if you want to support us beyond everything else you can go to laxfactor.com get some swag hats t-shirts and more so as always thank you for listening to me ramble on over and over again it means a lot to me it gives me something to do here especially during covid but uh that is it hoost is out 